Hey everybody, and welcome to our newest project for first responder wellness, No One Fights Alone, an in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the first responder space. We're joined by your hosts, Austin Pedersen. Welcome back everybody to another episode of No One Fights Alone. I'm sitting here with the infamous Officer Nicole Jude from Indianapolis. Nicole is someone uh, in the few years that I've been working in this space has been a constant in what first responder wellness is and has helped uh, a lot of other departments and her own department um, integrate something that has been First off, I think it's been super helpful uh, to your officers, but also I think it's been really cool to see other departments call uh, and ask for advice on what they should do in whether it's critical incidents or, you know, as far as, you know, somebody just needing therapy, um, you know, Indianapolis has uh, kind of paved the way. Uh, for a lot of other departments. And so, uh, Nicole, I just wanted to hear, you know, kind of from you, you know, where you started in this space, how long you've been doing this, uh, maybe some of the struggles that you've come up with across the the seven years that you've been doing this. And um, just tell us a little bit about what, what you guys do. Yeah, so um, I have been in our wellness office now for almost seven years, um, which is the greatest honor as a police officer, I think, that I could have. Um, The ability to walk through the fires of life with other cops is, uh, it's really, it's an unspeakable honor. Um, Well, I mean, it it has its negatives and positives it does right it does i'm Um, sure i'm sure you've taken stuff home with you before and you know you've been a part of some very stressful situations yeah um and that's definitely a great point is uh the self-compare or the self-care component Mm -hmm. for people working in this space um i was probably about three years into working in wellness and i was like mm, waving the white flag, right? Because ready to give up. I was burnout. I was in compassion fatigue, and you know we read, we all read emotional survival by Gil Martin, and it lays it all out. And I was preaching it, and I wasn't practicing it in my own life. And I was to the point that I was like, I need a break. <clears throat> and I was fortunate enough that my bosses at the time let me go do essentially a multiple time card detail somewhere else to work on myself. And ever since that, the self-care component has remained a study for me. Um, Do you think that you got to that point because you were maybe flying by the seat of your pants when it came to like building this program? Or was it that you were just giving everything you had to your fellow officers? Um, So... Specifically for Indianapolis, we have had different sets of growth points in our program. Um, So I'd say it's probably both. Um, When 
for those of us who work in this space, it's a difficult balance between caring for ourselves and caring for others. Yeah. And so it's a hard thing. And I think it's, I think it's probably both. So Um, when you talk about the growth patterns, like, can you explain where it was when you started? Like what, what had been developed when you walked in the doors or was there nothing? Yeah, no. So when I first came to the unit, it was, our unit was initially created by Captain Brian Navity, who was a late shift captain and was seeing good officers that were struggling at work. And he was like, hey, what's going on? And so he pinpointed, why don't we be proactive and getting them to resources rather than reactive by the time they're having workplace problems, right? So what what year was that? Do you so think that, that was started? 2010 when the when our unit was formally implemented on the agency. Okay. Was he doing that informally before, do you think? Or Yeah, he he was a well-respected captain, so he definitely was doing it okay. informally before that. And Deputy Chief Val Cunningham said, either you're going to implement this because she saw that it was successful, either Captain Navity, you're going to implement this, or somebody else is. Yeah, and, and, so- and you guys weren't, like, because now you're full-time wellness basically yes. right yes. like back back then that was not the case prior to 2010 it was not the case okay right um and since then part of those growth patterns right has been allocation of staffing and money to our unit so we currently now have um two sergeants two patrol officers and then a retired patrol officer in our unit um and with that comes a pretty hefty budget just based on yeah. our salaries and, you know, the EAP contract. Like there's all kinds of things that fall underneath of that as well as, you know, like our psychologist visits and yeah. all that. And so how many, how many officers, when you're operating at a hundred percent, how many officers uh, does IMPD have at one time? So I think we're currently right around like 16 to 1700 sworn. Um, about 300 civilians and then, um, their families, right? So we, we support families, um, because without our families, we, yeah, I mean, divorce, divorce rates, as you know, are very high. And part of this wellness initiative is to decrease those, I'm guessing, right? right. And bring, bring stress down from the family point of view because right you know people come home stressed out yeah from- and our goal our main goal is to have healthy individuals mm-hmm. and having a healthy individual means you have a healthy officer to be able to respond in a healthy capacity to the community yeah and and i don't think that most people know exactly what the eap the psychologists, everything like that consists of. So can you give us just a roundabout view of like what that actually entails? Do you have multiple? Is it, you know, mandatory visits, anything like that? Yeah. So the way it works for us in India is that um, the EAP is um, a city contract, right? So it's all city employees have it. Um, It's called the Employee Assistance Program, which is therapist. It's short-term therapy for individuals so like six visits um so technically it's unlimited visits for them but it's still 
the way that the capacity in which it's utilized is generally short-term issues, okay. short-term yeah. issues. So, um, we also have a psychologist that we use, and then we have a whole set of different therapists and counselors in which we utilize as well, who are all culturally competent, which we are in constant communication with to make sure that they're getting what they need. Um, are in constant communication with our officers to make sure that those counselors and therapists are called like they're understanding yeah, and they're not huge. affected by the trauma that we experience. Right. Because yeah. we've all heard the horror stories of officers that yeah. have traumatized their therapists. Yeah. Make the therapist cry. I think, right. I think anyone probably prior to 2010 had that experience. Yes. Yeah. We hear some really horrible stories from across the country about yeah. EAPs. I mean, it's just the reality of it. Yeah. Well, so does, in your opinion, uh, do you think that your department still has that same classic view of the EAP though, which is maybe they don't trust them as much or they just don't want to go to them? Or do you think that because you guys have, you know, a team of five members that are spreading the word and trying to make it a little bit more socially acceptable that people actually utilize it? Because I think, and, and I think a lot of places have that EAP, but then people just don't use it. Yeah. So I think that one of the reasons why um, the culture on our agency has changed and continues to change is because we look at it from like a holistic perspective, right? We meet the recruits where they are from the beginning of the academy with the mentor program. And then Sergeant Baker and the rest of the unit also works diligently to make sure that our retirees are respected on their way out. Right. Yeah. So a part of that is us just relationship building in general. Yeah. Right. Because wellness is people, not programming. Um, and my personal perspective is you can throw an app at it all day long. An app is stagnant. Yeah. I mean, there's a space for it. Don't get me wrong. They're functional in some mm. capacities. But for us on IMPD, we are constantly building relationships. And part of that is with the EAP, right? And part of that is getting the feedback from our officers that are seeing them as to what's happening. And part of that is getting our feedback from, you know, our other resources and therapists for what they're getting. So I think that there is a space for EAPs to be successful on police agencies. I think it just takes work. Yeah. Like and, anything else. I mean, they're yeah. a provider for a department. And so if that provider is not giving you what you need as their, their resource, then that needs to be communicated to them. So they have the potential to do better. Yeah, no, that's a great point. But I, I want to circle back to something that I heard you say at the beginning that I don't think I've heard before. And so you're going into the academy. And you are starting that conversation at the academy. What does that look like? Yeah. So, um, you know, it's kind of that perspective. We take that perspective of building resiliency from like the first week of the academy. Yeah. Um, and so all of our recruits are given a mentor of their own in like day five of the academy. And that mentor we have a pool of, it's like 10% of our agency at this point. So it's 170 voluntary. They, they all do this on their own time. Okay. Um, and they help our recruits assimilate like, right. Like culturally, because IMPD has its own culture, right. Mistake avoidance, it, all of these things to help, yeah. you know, 
Well, it's so I guess, you know, part of it is, is are they coming in and giving them a realistic view of the job too as well? Yes. Which is, yeah, I don't think, I mean, when we had Josh here last week, I don't know if he circled up on it, but he he's talked to me at least privately a ton about right now he's keeping one out of four officers that graduate the academy. So we're not talking even that number. Just one out of four are staying in the department for more than one year. Mm-hmm. And he attributes that to them not understanding what they're doing, like what they're getting into. Right. Uh, and so this peer program seems like it's an opportunity for people to actually have a realistic view. And I, and I think setting realistic expectations for someone, especially in like the career path is probably huge. Yeah. Right. Do you see like less people maybe bombing out in the first year because of that? Yeah. I mean, I think that look, we all want to be cared about. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, and I think we have, at this point, right, wrong, or different, whether we like it or not, we have a responsibility to show that. If we want police culture to get better, we have to show that. Yeah. And I think having this program shows that. And I do think, you know, everybody wants data on it and numbers for retention, right? That's Those are questions that I get we all the time. Like, we do live we in retain a data world. people? Yeah, we live in a data world. Right, and, and I can I, give yeah. you stories, um, but is there actual numbers to support it? You know, I can't give you those numbers. Well, I don't. Yeah, I get it. We live in that that type of world. Right. I guess even I revert back to that sometimes because you just hear it constantly from everybody. Right. You know, one in four or 50 percent or whatever, whatever it may be. And so I just I just think it's interesting that you I don't think anyone else is doing that. I mean, yeah, there are some agencies that are um, that are starting to do it Yeah, because they're seeing the success of I mean, like mm-hmm. that's. That's why I really wanted to, to sit down with you is because you you've been a part of that and, and yeah. it, it, whether or not if you if you see it or not, it's gone national. Yeah. Right? Like, so and I think that's one of the I think that's the most important part of. So I've been fortunate enough to be involved in that program now and basically run it for however many years at this point. Yeah. And I think the most important part of it is that. Now we are on like our third and fourth generation of like mentors. Yeah. Recruits coming through through our training to be mentors. That's how you change a culture, right? You just. Yeah. You have to infiltrate. You you start at the beginning and then it becomes generationally. I mean, you look at that in families, everything. Right. And so like when we host trainings, I will ask like recruits that have had mentors Right. Why are you here? And some of them are like, because I loved my mentor and some of them are I hated my mentor. And I'm like, OK, doesn't matter why they're there. They're there. They loved it or hated it. So it causes them to go back. It causes them it's to, do to that. change right. how the, the next person's perception or to that's right. That. And that's how you change a culture. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, so the other things that we do with the recruits early on, we have them uh, twice during the academy they come back in on a Saturday with their families and we talk about um, the unfortunate things that this job is most likely going to do to them. Yeah. Um, Does that scare anyone away? That that particular conversation, if they come in with their wife and then 
suddenly you don't see him again because the wife maybe stepped in and said, I don't think we want to do this for our relationship. Uh, well, yes, there's a yes, that does happen. Um, we had a we had a recruit who's significant other said, well, if you have to work on holidays, then you have to quit because you're going to be home for all the holidays, you know? And yeah. I mean, the reality of it is this profession is not for everyone. And it's better to find that out sooner than later. So. Yeah. No, I mean, it, it makes perfect sense to, to bring the families in. Yeah. I mean, like anyone's career and whether it's construction to law enforcement, I mean, it revolves around your work schedule. You're at work more than you're at home. Yeah. Especially in this job. Yeah. As so, you know. So. The recruits are required to read the Gil Martin book, Emotional Survival. Okay. And we kind of go over that. Sergeant Biggers, the one that teaches all of those those classes. So they're required to read that. And we kind of debrief. And then we do break off groups. Um, we break the recruits away from the spouses and debrief. And then we bring everybody back together and talk about the book from there. So the spouses have the opportunity to talk about yeah. what they feel about it. The recruits do. And, and they also get to meet all five of you. Yes. Which I'm guessing that opens up the idea that you're probably a, you know, safe person to go talk to if they need something. Yeah. Which is amazing too, because now at this point we've had people go directly from severely tragic runs straight to our office. Yeah. Like they know where our office is. And it's they... offsite, right? Like it's not. So it's, we are located in our training academy. We have our own training academy in house, but it's like on the outskirts of it. Yeah. So everybody but like people can't right. really know unless they're there at that right. exact spot, whether someone's coming. Right. Yeah. yeah. Like it's not next to the chief's office. Or right. Something. Exactly. So yeah. we have people coming directly to our office after tragedy. And that's the design. Right. Right. But seven years ago, was that a thing? Or has it taken that long? Yeah, it's taken it's taken a while. But I will say I think that um I mean we joke about law enforcement being like middle school with guns, right? I mean that's we joke about that internally and with that comes chatter. And I think it's no different for the wellness space when you have a success that spreads like wildfire. Yeah. And so that I, I mean, well, you live off the successes, right? Like you, you have to for your career, like right. for your, for, to make it, to go to work every single day, right. especially in mental health. Like we, we all live off of the successes because right. yeah. that's, that's the only way to keep going. Cause there are days as I'm, you know, that I experience. I'm sure you experience that you ask yourself, like, is this working? Right. You do wonder that. Yeah. You know, and, because especially it's hard to watch someone suffer and it's hard to watch someone else's definition of their rock bottom, not match with your own. Yeah. And then also someone who's been given a hundred opportunities until there's none left. Yeah. And you see them lose that career or that family or, you know, whatever it may be, which is, difficult if, if you have feelings you're you're not going to feel good about it right there there are those that don't care though right right like you, you've come across narcissistic officers i mean i mean you've come across everything 
I think now. And you've seen the the ones that are regretful. You've seen the ones that actually want the help. And then you've seen the ones that don't care. That's right. And they're there to check a box. Yeah. You know, so it's you you've seen every single scope of of people, male and female. And you get to see their their struggles, their successes, their failures, all, all of those things. And so if someone were to come, kind of give us an overview, if someone was to walk into your office and say, you know, I need help, right? Like, are you, that's a very general statement. So obviously there's different, you know, reactions to that, whether it's like individual therapy or, or whatever, but how, how did, how does that process kind of go? Yeah. So we get referrals now. When we first started out, most of our referrals were for discipline um, and we moved quickly. So when you say discipline, what is that? So disciplinary referrals. Somebody's already in trouble and they're like, hey, wellness figured out. Right. Yeah. Um, and we moved quickly away from that because of the successes that I was talking about earlier. And um, so now the majority of our referrals are either early intervention from supervisors, self-referrals or peers. Right. So a peer that's like, hey, so and so is struggling. I don't know how to approach them. Can you reach out? Right. Which we're protected um, under House Bill and Rolled Act number 1122, 2017. Right. So mm -hmm. we, everything we talk about is confidential. We can't be subpoenaed. Um, so if somebody comes to us and says, I need help with, I don't know. I'm getting a divorce, right? We have a whole set of resources that we will refer to for that. So it really just depends on what they're coming to us with. But we've worked really hard. You know, we always say we're, we're cops. Like, I'll sit in the shit with you all day long. I'll listen to you. I have no problem doing that. It's humbling. I don't ever take it for granted. But, like, we got to get you to the professionals that can help guide you down the journey, right? I'm just your accountability partner. So whenever anybody reaches out, it's faced very differently. And when, so we don't operate, I say this and people like in the police world, you can just see people's affect change, but we don't have a specific policy for our office. Um, That's like unexpected. 12 honestly. years of operation. Yeah. And part of that is because it's very respected that we operate in the gray. Um, so we have a lot of latitude to figure out how to best help our people. It's not mm -hmm. confined by some black and white policy. So, and so this is something I got to know then. Like if someone comes in with extreme SI, I mean, there's, there's, you're operating in that gray area. Is it, you are still, you know, that's, a 24 hour hold. Oh, suicidal ideation. Yeah. Um, so obviously we're still cops and we have duty to report things. Right. So that doesn't change ever. Um, and I, me personally, so I operated in the office before we had the protection mm -hmm. from the law. And I mean, I think when you sign up for a wellness, you're signing up knowing you operate in the gray area, but they're still the right and the wrong from a human standpoint. So if someone is suicidal, we don't, and they're like refusing to go to the hospital for yeah, an immediate detention. Yeah. I mean, it personally, I'm going to say, look, you're a cop. I'm a cop. 
you're not in the greatest space, we have to make sure that you are going to be okay. Yeah. And right? will they lose and their so, job for that immediately? Because some places they will. Some places they do. That does not happen for us. So we would have uniforms go and do an immediate detention on them. So we aren't the punitive ones in the wellness office. Yeah. Um, we are very fortunate, too, that we have 90 sick days a year that we can use. So generally, like procedurally, that person will be put on sick leave. They use that sick leave time to get to a better space to be able to come back to work. Yeah. Um, and that could be anything from psychiatrist to like full on residential treatment. They yes. can use those sick days. Correct. For. Yeah. Cause there is, Absolutely. you know, if someone you are used as a resource for that, for them, I'm guessing, you know, yeah. recommendations as all you can make though, really. Right. Like that's right. Is there any point where, someone's job is under duress if they don't seek some type of care? I mean, I, I would, I guess the answer to that is probably yes. Right. Then it may not be because of their, whatever they have going on in their life, but whatever they have going on in their life is not allowing them to be functional at work. Yeah. And that would be the nexus that would be the problem. And so if someone goes to some type of treatment, whether it is, you know, um, residential or outpatient or, or anything like that, uh, do, do any of the quote unquote higher ups know that they're gone? So the way it works for us, um, we answer directly to our deputy chief of administration. So that's a call from one of us in the wellness, whoever is working with that individual to say, Hey, look, so-and-so is going to treatment, right? And part of that and part of our job in the wellness unit is transparency, right? Mm -hmm. To say, so that officer is clear that I'm making that phone call because I'm not going to make that phone call and say anything to the deputy chief and betray that officer's trust, Yeah. right? Um, So if he says don't call, you don't call. So if he says don't call them, my answer to that is you have to mark off sick. Yeah, I get it. Right? Yeah. Because they need a doctor's note. So it's a lot of procedural stuff for us that it is in their benefit. Right? No, totally Because then it, yeah. they can go away to treatment and we take care of their sick notes and then we take care of that stuff. So we are just natural setup was very rich and ripe to make this functional for our people. Yeah. You had to learn you know, as it happened, I'm sure. Oh right. yeah. We're still learning. I mean, I think, I think that's a misnomer too. I think people look at like our program at this point and they're like, Oh, 12 years, 1700 people, because we are a large agency in comparison. And they're like, Oh, we can't have that, but it's all scalable and it's all workable. You have to just work through it. Yeah. Well, I think the biggest, so there's a neighboring town that I was talking to, to their peer support officer. And the difference, the stark difference between the two of you is, you refer them out. Mm-hmm. Like you don't, you, you sit in the shit with them for a certain amount of time. Right. But then it is, let's let the professionals, they don't, they don't have that particular resource. So they sit with them for days. Right. And that's not that there is no, you, that's not, not sustainable, not sustainable. Yeah. Which is why three years in you're, you're burned out. That's correct. Yeah. Cause I think you, you probably started that way. 
right. a little bit, right? I think yeah. any person who starts in the mental health field and works in that space has that portion. So honestly, I think that like for agencies that are wanting to start a program after, and this is interesting because the most important thing is the resource. That's the most important thing. And having the right person in the seat to transfer the trust, right? I'm constantly like, my job is transferring trust because I have the officer that's like, Nicole, I'll talk to you all day long. Yeah. Right? Well, I'm not the one you need to talk to. This is the, this professional is the one you need to talk to. I trust them. You need to trust them too. Yeah. Right? So like having the resources and the right wellness person is. That's the two. Yeah, but that's. That's, yeah, I think a lot of them start out as the right person, but because they don't have the resources, they get burned out and they are no longer the right person for that right. role. And like, burnout happens fast and really fast. And that, yeah, yeah. I mean, like I think, I think majority of us have been burned out at one stage or another. Yeah, yeah. And so, let's go back into your self care to get out of that burnout. Then, so what did you have to start doing? to take care of yourself away from that? Yeah, that's a great question. So like, I just ripped the bandit off for three months and was like, I need to, so I came from undercover narcotics. I was an undercover narcotics detective for the East side. Um, so when I was saying I need a break, I was like, oh, I am, can I just go back to my old home? So that's what I did. Um, and I don't know that I did much of anything for self-care while I was there other than just like trying to find peace and quiet, yeah, right? It was, a, it was a break. Yeah. Like that's, I think that's the biggest thing. Like we can, it was just a break. Right. And so I was having some physical health stuff, problems at the time, like chronic pain, um, which is horrible. Yeah. Uh, and so the biggest thing that I've done for myself the most consistent thing that I've done for myself is I found myself a therapist. I've got a therapist. Look I at see you her. go. What? Look at you go. I know. I yeah. see her every week. You She's amazing. To, yeah, you listen to your Shout own out, advice. Christy. Yeah. <laughs> um, but that's like my finish line some weeks where it's like, oh, man, okay. It's Thursday. I, I got to make it to Monday because I see her every Monday at 2. Like, that's just my standing yeah. It's what I do. I mean, I do it too every other week on a Tuesday. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. It feels like a finish line. Yeah. Some days when I walk into her office, it's really bad if I go and I just sit straight on the floor. She's like, oh shit, this is not good. Yeah. <laughs> She's known um, you long enough to know the signs. Yeah. And that's the most important part about it, right? That I don't like at this point in my journey with her. So four years like she, I, she knows me so well, I may not even have to articulate that I'm off. She just knows I'm off. Yeah. And, and that's, that's why the trust. That's right. The portion you were talking yeah. about. Yeah. I don't think most people allow their therapist to have. Right. That, and that's the first step. Well, it takes work. Therapy takes work. Right. And most of us don't want to do it. Well, healing takes work. Yeah. Whether it's physical or mental. That's right. And a lot of us don't want to do it. I didn't want to do it for a lot of years. So I sat in depression and 
anxiety and you know all of that stuff that's just until you just can't not take it anymore yeah i mean i was doing this job full time for however long and that's exactly where i landed yeah it's the it's the only way i think is to you either leave the job or you go get some help yeah so that's that's it's yeah. a really good point so um talked a little bit about you know how you guys started um i mean what do you think the influence like nationally that you guys have i mean like I, I mean, obviously there's like the wellness conferences and things like that but do you have outside agencies contacting you asking you for tips and you know help guide them to figure out what to do yeah um we definitely do which is also super humbling um that you know not just what we're doing here in indy is changing lives but across the country yeah um you know as a patrol officer to be able to get to do that is really cool i mean patrol officers don't get to do things like that generally in the police world so that's been a huge blessing i guess um was it five years ago you got a grant and traveled the country? Something like, yeah. It's kind of been a blur. It's yeah. been a blur of busyness. Yeah. But yeah, I think it was. So yes, we got the um, micro grant in 2018, 2017, I think. So what did you guys do with that? So we traveled to different agencies and helped, um, did like presentations and helped them implement wellness programming and that was across across the country yeah so you're you've left your mark all over then for, uh, in the wellness standpoint. Yeah, you can say it i can't i it's uh, yeah yeah <laughs> no it's a cool it's a cool thing and so it was and that was like kind of more of the beginning of when i feel like wellness took a shift in like 2018 2000 yeah i totally agree with that i think yeah. that there has been a huge, I mean, it's the sexy thing now, right? Like resiliency and wellness. Like it, it yeah. is like that's, yeah. and agencies that aren't doing it at this point are wrong. They're just wrong because yeah. I mean, you can look at the data now shows what, I mean, oh, we just dropped data. You left it out before, but now the data is showing that. Well, I was talking specific to mentoring, but the data is showing what this job does to people in general. Yeah. Right. Yeah, um, life. I mean, yeah. You look at after retirement, during the job, even just yeah. being on late shift, right? Doctor Violante yeah. in New York, he's done great work about just shift work on this job. Like it's, it takes a toll, and it's the reality of it. But I, you know, what fixes it? I don't know. Chateau. We, we hope so. I, I think that's the goal. You know, I think that we're definitely more of like the last resort. Yeah, know? but one that's definitely needed. I mean, I think the hope is that people are proactive about it before. But yeah, I think but I don't think that people are proactive. Well, generally speaking, I think that in in this particular career and it's fire EMS, it's all reactive. Mm hmm. Yeah. Because you let it go. I mean, this is, we're looking at years and years of uh, trauma, depression, relationship issues until people just 
crack. Yeah. And even like with us, this last FOP wellness conference, um, our unit and Deputy Chief Cunningham did a presentation over the decade of growth, yeah. like specific to the decade of growth that we've had in Indy, was talking about like how we had gone, like the different phases of yeah. reactive, like being reactive to proactive yeah, to reactive. And just yeah. the, the small things that come with that staffing right? Like when staffing ebbs and flows, and then you don't have the space to help build resiliency in people the way that you want to. So then there's just a natural lag. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you compensate for that when it's people's lives and their relationships, their marriages? You can't. That's, that's the bottom line. No, I sat, I think I sat in that presentation at the FOP wellness and it was super interesting. And it was super interesting to see like different people raise their hand and ask different questions from yeah, all I over. Mean, like questions that were obviously either about themselves. Right. Probably. Or a very specific person they had in mind. Yeah. And that's one thing too, that like when I first started teaching, cause I am an introvert. I don't. Same. I mean, yeah. It I took, didn't. It took everything to get us on this podcast. Yeah. No kidding. It took. Yeah. Right. And um, when I first started teaching, my anxiety it was almost debilitating, right? Yeah. And Had to take a Xanax before? No. I've never taken Xanax. Good. Good for you. I hear it's addicting. <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. Um, but Nana- Captain Navity said to me, he was like, if you can teach cops, you can teach anybody. Because they don't want to listen. Well, and most of the time... The people that had their face in the phones or that have their face in their phones or that are like dicking around, like they're the ones, they're the ones that come up to you or they're the ones that email you or text you and say, I heard you and I need help. Interesting. Like. Why do you think that is? Because. Self-defense mechanism? Oh, totally. And because it's almost that thing where. They feel it's like the guilty conscience. Like, yeah, totally. And so they yeah. try and turn it off or. Distract yeah. Like, themselves. oh, I don't want Joe to know that. Yeah. 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 So they pretend to all their buddies that. Yeah. Or joke about it yeah. or talk shit about it. Right. Yeah. And then secretly. Yeah. It's an interesting. Is yeah. that the cult? Is just a cultural thing at that point? Yeah. John had Sergeant Baker had somebody tell him one time was suffering from PTSI. He said, I don't call my buddy out on his shit because I don't want him to call me out on my on mine. Yeah. So we drink some more. What a solution. I mean, it makes... that's That doesn't shock me. That's the common solution for everybody, you know? Yeah. But it's the truth. I mean, that's... Yeah. Have, have you seen that issue become more prevalent in the last few years, drinking? You know what I think that I don't think, no, short answer, no. Um, what I think we're seeing way more of is anxiety, yeah, debilitating I think, anxiety. I think that that's not just first responders. It's the world. I think I think yeah. the, the, the scope of treatment has changed drastically. And the scope of treatment 10 years ago, I think, was like, Oh, I've got an alcohol problem, right? And I'm depressed because 
I drink. And so if I stop drinking, I'll stop being depressed. That was like their mindset, right? Right. And now it is, I'm depressed, I'm anxious, so I drink. And so now I, I need to take care of that and I'll stop drinking. Yeah. Like it, but that's that's a big difference. Like that's basically polar opposites to, to what people were looking at. But what it's caused is it's almost like an acceptance mm. of of like maybe there's more going on than just the drinking, like an underlying issue. Mm-hmm. So an acceptance on those on people's ends, but it also has a negative effect because it people don't stop drinking, right? Like they just think it's the depression and the anxiety, and they've taken care of that. They've gotten therapy. They've they've gotten all that. So it has. So they think that's it, but really, you know, there's been a negative impact from right from it blacking out every night. Yeah. Does that does that sound kind of? Familiar or do you have a different... Yeah, no. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that oftentimes people want to say that military and first responders are the same in what they feel and think. And trauma may be trauma, um, but part of police, like the police warfare is that it's at home. It's in our backyard. Mm-hmm. And we go back to it every 12 hours, whatever your shift is, every day. And so I think that anything that cops can do to alleviate that depression and anxiety they have when they're not on duty, they're going to take. Yeah. So, like, it's the hypervigilance, right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's biologically based. I mean... But so like anything that they can do to stop that yeah. in the interim. So like, are, are they the drinker that drinks the second that they get off duty? No. Or yes. Probably. Okay. Right. That, you yeah. know. Yeah. No, I get what you're saying. Yeah. I get what you're saying. But, but that's what people, that's what I think our people are doing to alleviate their anxiety. Gotcha. Yeah. So they're not full out drunks where they're like. Yeah. They're just trying to take away the pain. Right. So why is the anxiety so much higher? Do you think? Well, in Indy, it's because 2020 was a rough year for us on the department. Yeah, I think um, nationally. And nationally, we yeah. had horrible riots. Yeah. Um, there was a lot of political tension around it. Our officers felt um, they weren't allowed to do their jobs during the riots. Right, wrong, or different. That's the emotion and the feelings that they have from it. Yeah. We had a line of duty death. Officer Brian Leith was murdered. Uh, you know, I mean, COVID just on and on and on. And I also don't think that we really saw the full gamut and fallout from that until 2021. That makes sense. Because there wasn't, we didn't feel, cops, we have a task to do. We're going to do our job, right? And yeah. we'll they deal showed with the up. rest later. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they showed up to work yeah. knowing full well what the landscape Right. And so in 2021, after we had created this program that says you're allowed to not be okay, people started saying I'm not okay when they had the space and they felt safe to do it. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, I I think. I think. uh, I think that, that that feeling is pretty big throughout everyone i mean yeah like if 
fire, EMS side, everything. I think everyone kind of felt that same. I think they saw from this is secondhand and it's from a few people, but they felt like they saw a different side of humans and like their outlook on if people are good or not good just changed. And then that instilled this like ever sense of dread. Yeah. Scary. That's interesting. Yeah. It's it's scary because if like you no longer think that people are good, you know, like that's that's a problem. Okay, I know we went a little off track there, um, but you know, I I think that the main the main thing that we want people to get out of this is that there there is hope for this career and this job in a wellness standpoint like i think that if we focus like you guys are nationally on you know prior to them starting in the academy while they're you know working and then retirement as well cuz that's a whole nother part that we didn't even go over is what you guys are doing for retirees, mm. right? And like what I think anyone listening to this has heard the story or knows personally of someone who retired and two weeks after they retired, like everything crumbled. Yeah. Right? And yeah. so like that's that's one of the biggest things that I want uh, people to to get out of this is that it's it's starting and it's becoming more and more popular. Like you said, it's the sexy thing, the resilience and, you know, everything like that. But yeah. I really just appreciate the time you took with me tonight. It is 1030 and you're out here, you know, spreading the word on like how to help people. Yeah. So I just really appreciate it. Thank you. Yep. Thanks, Austin. Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored by Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's first responder resiliency program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to chateaurecovery.com or call 888-507-5031. No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First responder trauma counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. 
This 40-hour all-badges, all-uniforms, and all-scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life, it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222419-3. This could be the most life-changing academy you'll ever attend.